Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I'm your host, Greg Knuckles. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Uh, If you like the podcast, make sure to like, rate, and subscribe uh, wherever one would do that. Uh, If you're interested in keeping up with the uh, the exercise and nutrition science content we put out, you could sign up to our newsletter. Or if you're interested in some help reaching your strength, physique, performance goals, you should check out Stronger by Science Coaching. Uh, links to both of those things will be in the show notes. Uh, if you're interested in getting cheap supplements for even cheaper yet, check out bulksupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD at checkout for a 5% discount. Uh, if you're interested in a research review, check out Mass. Uh, if you are a newfound refugee from my fitness pal, you're, you're awash uh, in a sea without barcode scanning, uh, maybe check out Macrofactor. Uh, that is our nutrition app. The link to that will also be in the show notes. And finally, for people who commented, uh, about the last episode, about me saying I'm the host and doing the intro, uh, that's on you. That's not on me. You need to check out the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat lore a little bit more in depth. Eric is the host of the regular episodes. I am and have always been the host of the Fireside Chats. Uh, So anyway, just if you come for the king, you better not miss. Like you you think you know the Fireside Chats, uh, but you don't. So... This is this is my domain. Is there like a wiki yet where people can get? Because like with Game of Thrones, there's like a whole wiki where they can get all the backstories and histories. I mean, I I imagine a wiki for for the Stronger by Science podcast would be uh, basically the Q and A page that's already on the website with explanations of our like three inside jokes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. As everyone knows, uh, really not inside jokes, just obvious running bits. Yeah the the podcast co host union that you founded uh, got really aggressive when we were at the uh, at the discussion bargaining table and overreached pretty aggressively. But you are technically, uh, in the eyes of the law, uh, the host of the fireside chats. That is true. Correct. Um, with with regards to last week's episode. I have a big clarification uh, because I was thinking about it after we recorded. I mentioned my disinterest. Uh, excuse me, I'm I'm the host of this. Okay. All right. So now let's transition into the clarification segment of this show. All right, take it away. Yeah. So I I mentioned that I have a general disinterest and lack of curiosity when it comes to gadgets and even the most basic of technologies, and I didn't provide the most effective examples to really clarify that so a few things that i think really solidify that point uh i was an extremely late adopter for smartphones i i truly did not want one until my parents essentially insisted because we were on like a family phone plan and they're like well we are all getting them and it's going to change our plan so like you must have one now i got that phone and i kept it for 10 years hell yeah which in smartphone years is 150 years Mm -hmm. Uh, and it got to the point, you, I'm sure you recall, when we were alpha testing for Macro Factor, uh, Corey and Rebecca, our developers, when I brought my phone out, they 
treated it like a museum exhibit. They're yeah. like, oh my God, I didn't know these were still supported. Mm-hmm. Are they still supported? And that was like one of our biggest development. Uh, like our fail safe was like, if it works on Eric's phone, it will work on every phone in existence that isn't essentially a rotary phone. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I had an iPhone 5 for like 10 or 11 years. And then it eventually died. And I, <laughs> I went to the store and said, do you have anything that is very close to this? Uh, and I've got a phone that was like four years old or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing, even with basic things like glasses. I've had the same pair of glasses for 13 years. I don't have a backup pair. I've just been living on the edge like that. And I'm like, ah, I'm sure it'll be fine forever. And so far, it's been fine. Um, Seems good. But I'm sure if I ever go to the eye doctor, they're going to be like, hey, you, have you not been to the eye doctor in like half a decade? And I'll be like, yeah, that's, that, that's correct. Do you, do you wear contacts? Uh, sometimes. Okay. Uh, what what I do with contacts, uh, God, someone who knows something about eyes is going to absolutely destroy me for this. But I basically got like the single day use ones. Yeah. And I got five years worth. Or yeah. no, 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 I got a year's worth. But I usually can use a year's worth of contacts for like five or six years. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went to the the eye doctor 13 years ago and then like six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been fine with all of my... <laughs> All of my vision-related needs, but I'm sure somebody's listening is just like, oh my God, what is wrong with him? Uh, Another simple one, uh, I use my headphones daily, um, but my biggest complaint has always been like, they're Bluetooth compatible, but there's not a cord, and sometimes I really want to plug them in. Yeah. And I was also annoyed, they don't have like a carrying case, so I beat them up when I put them in the gym bag, put them Mm -hmm. in my backpack. Uh, So I just made peace with those limitations and didn't really uh, investigate further. Turns out, they do have a cord and a carrying case. I just forgot. <laughs> I had no I had no idea. Uh so yeah, when it comes to gadgets and technologies, I just like get something that fulfills the basic use case mm-hmm. and I never explore it further. Yeah. Um now, moving on to new stuff. A- actually, if I may. before we move on to that, one one more announcement should have made this at the top of the show. Uh if you're listening and you're like, "Hey, I I'm here for science exercise nutrition content another fireside chat when's when's the normal programming coming back that will probably be next week or the week after uh, as we mentioned on the last episode we're trying out a new tech setup if you watch on youtube you you probably saw we now have a three camera setup going uh and so you know we, we're we're doing some fireside chats to ensure that that we can work out the kinks um the setup process for this week was much smoother than the setup process for last week, uh, and the video quality this week hopefully should be better than the video quality last week. So I think we're pretty close to being able to transition into normal episodes. If something goes disastrously wrong this time, there might be a few more fireside chats while we continue to work out the kinks. But assuming everything goes smoothly, uh, the, the regularly scheduled programming will be returning soon. Yeah, I have high hopes for this episode. Last episode, what we brought to you, the viewing audience, was a joke. It was a travesty. It was beneath the standards that that you've come to expect. And we fired a lot of interns because of that. Yeah. So so we really cleaned house, uh, and we expect that this episode is going to be much better, or we're going to have to find an entire additional cohort of interns. So we'll see. Correct. Um, but yeah, so moving on, before we get into some of the the questions from listeners there was an image going around on twitter uh and i'm gonna link it in the show notes 
It is a digital rendering of what Aristotle would have looked like in the flesh. Uh, and it's, it's awesome, first of all. But this, the reason I bring this up is because I saw three comments on what Aristotle looks like. Number one, the unanimous fan favorite was Greg. It turns out that Aristotle and Greg, I wouldn't say that you guys look like twins, but you look like very close brothers. I had I had no fewer than 30 people send that to me. Yeah. So it, that it was it's a striking resemblance. You you have to acknowledge that. Uh other things that came up some people said, I love an oddly specific uh looks like analogy uh or, or connection. So someone said it looks like that Aristotle looks like an offensive lineman specifically for Iowa's football team. Yeah. And that's actually extremely true. Yeah. That, uh, that checks out for sure. That is perfectly true in an oddly specific way. So yeah, Aristotle does look like an Iowa offensive lineman. He also looks like any Buffalo Bills fan, uh, which I think is also pretty true. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Aristotle uh, contributed to many fields of philosophy and is also the chairman of the Bills Mafia. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it did bring up a question that I was curious about. Uh, Greg, do you have any celebrities that people often compare you to other than uh, now Aristotle? Yeah. So um, I will note, I did not really see the resemblance between, between me and, and this, uh, this picture that was going around. Um, that could be a trickle down effect of, I don't really know what I look like. Um, I don't look in mirrors, uh, mostly cause I, I, I'm just not interested. Like I don't care. Um, people are going to laugh at you for that, but I actually agree entirely. Yeah. Uh, and there have been times where I look in the mirror and I'm like, you know, I'll be like, oh, I have something on my face. How long has it been there? I have no idea. I haven't yeah. looked at a mirror in four days. So know? the the only time I look in the mirror is if I'm having like a small existential crisis. And it's like, you know, like you're you're looking yourself in the eyes. And it's like time to buck up. You actually look in a mirror when you're looking in a mirror metaphorically. So, yeah, uh, if. Because that sounds insane to me. <laughs> to be honest. So if if I'm. If I'm like feeling or experiencing things that I'm like unacquainted with, I, I feel like, you know, if, if I was, um, you know, if I was trying to get, if I was trying to get a feel for someone else, I'm going to want to be in the same room with them. I'm going to want to be able to look them in the eyes. Like, I, I think you can just, you can pick up on a lot of implicit information from, from that, um, and like I don't do that with myself. And so when I feel like, man, some some shit's going on, I'm having a hard time processing it. I, I treat myself the way I would treat another person. Like, you know, I I need I need to look myself in the eyes, like tr try to get a feel for like what what's going on in that person's head that's like looking back at me in the mirror. Um and I'm like, I don't know. It, it every time it's weird. I'm like, oh. I look like that. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I, I didn't think I looked that much like Aristotle. My wife didn't think I looked that much like him. Uh, but the celebrity comparison that I have frequently gotten throughout m most of my life is Zach Galifianakis, which like, I don't really see that one either. Well, that, that one's not even close. Like, I see the Aristotle. I don't see that one at all. I kind of think 
like I, I also like not not just the Aristotle thing. Like if if someone with my general body type and a beard, uh ever hits like an impressive lift on instagram people will just like tag me in it be like oh <laughs> at, at greg knuckles this is you yeah and like most most of the time there's not even a resemblance yeah like i think i think a lot of folks just assume that somewhat overweight white guys with beards all look the same yeah uh which is fine i mean that that would make it much easier for me to get away with crimes like yeah. there, there would be so many false leads correct um but yeah, so uh, Zach Galifianakis is is pretty much it for me. Yeah, how about you? Um, there there were two that I would get when I was younger. Um, one of them I I think is way off base. The other is kind of closer in the ballpark. But I do I do want to express a caveat on the front end. These are very flattering comparisons, right? So I think I know why you put this segment in the outline now. Well, no, it's these are excessively flattering, but like that's pretty much the nature of celebrity lookalikes. Like a lot of times, the celebrities are the beautiful people, and I'm merely one of the common folk. So usually with celebrity comparisons, it's like of the beautiful people, which one do you have some basic resemblance that mm-hmm. that is you know connected there. So one person, one specific person back in the day used to always tell me I looked like Mark Wahlberg. And I don't think that's accurate whatsoever. I think that's, I think that's less physical and more spiritual. Like you, you give off the same energy as Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> like when, when I see you, I say like, he could have stopped that plane from crashing into the second tower. I have no idea what you're referring to. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Wahlberg claimed in like 2004 that if he would have been on the plane, he would have stopped 9-11. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't see the resemblance I'm, I'm going to have to fact check myself on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, but the one that I've gotten before, again, I'm not nearly as attractive as this person and don't claim to be, but I have gotten Matt Damon, which nowadays doesn't seem good because like, Time, time has not been kind to me. I don't look the way I looked when I was younger. But when I was younger and had uh, longer hair, I could kind of see the resemblance there. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, that, that's about as close as anyone's ever gotten with a celebrity lookalike for me. Have you fact-checked all your ridiculous claims there? Yeah, I did. Uh, here's the quote. If I was on that plane with my kids, it wouldn't have went down like it did. There would have been a lot more blood, or there would have been a lot of blood in that first-class ca- first cabin. And then me saying, quote, okay, we're going to land somewhere safely. Don't worry. Wow. That, that is certainly an opinion. Yeah. Wow. Okay, let's move on to some, uh, some listener questions. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. Uh, so, the, oh, yeah, I grouped these uh, in the outline to be kind of uh, themed in little clusters. So this one goes along with the physical appearance theme why, why don't you read it out here yeah so so raja Banerjee says uh what are the different facial hair styles you've tried what was the most ridiculous and do you have pictures so i don't think i have any pictures but when i was in high school you know how how high school kids are mm-hmm. they just kind of latch on to trends and within your high school within your insular community there is no alternative right it's just everybody agrees oh this is a cool thing that we're all doing now 
and in my high school, that was extremely thick and long sideburns. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here's an interesting question. What if you were not equipped to grow sideburns? Didn't matter. You just did it anyway. Y- y- yeah, just just go for it. Yeah, and yeah. so... Th- when I was in high school, there was an enormous cohort of young men <laughs> with these long, wispy <laughs> sideburns that looked absolutely horrific, truly mm-hmm. dreadful. And I was one of those uh, gentlemen. So I, I don't think I have any pictures, but I tried it and it was nothing else, just these big, bushy, disgusting, long sideburns. And they were awful. Um, so that rocks. I mean, in hindsight, there there are worse trends to go along with as a young person. But I mean, there were some folks who just, including myself, who were, were really not well suited for the look. Nice. Yeah. What about you? I feel like this is a question for you because you, you have essentially the full spectrum of facial hair opportunities accessible to you. I mean, I think you do, too. Like, you've you've got a thick beard. You just got you got to commit. I got some stuff over here that's not not filled in super well, but. It's fine. Growing it longer fixes everything. Like I, I have a, I have a pretty large bald spot like right here, but like it always stays long enough that no one can see it. Interesting. Well, I see. I, I had a, I had a roommate in college who kind of scarred me. He was, he was a dear friend, but every time I let my beard get a little bit longer, because mm-hmm. uh, at that time it was lighter in color. It's gotten darker over the years. Yeah, but he would, uh, I would walk into his room and like hang out, and he would just point at the door and say get your gross fleshy man beard out of my room uh like it was it was just too too blonde looking and yeah. fleshy and it, it made him physically uncomfortable yeah you, you just you just don't need those negative people in your life that's true um but yeah so i uh my, my mustache came in quite a bit later than my beard um and so for a while and also, like, I'm I'm very particular. I don't like my mustache touching my lip at all. Uh, and so as a confluence of those two factors, for a while, I, I, I wasn't rocking the beard and no mustache look, but I was rocking the beard and considerably shorter, considerably thinner mustache look. Uh, so it was like a pseudo, like, Abe Lincoln, pseudo Amish type deal. Nice. And that, that did not work for me. Mm. Um I I wouldn't be shocked if there are pictures of that somewhere, but I don't have them on my person. Um, and then then I I tried a, a lot of just kind of like random things as I was shaving, just like if I had to take it down for whatever reason, just for like a day or two, I would I would trim it into something else, just just for the shock value. So yeah. you know I, I had the the mustache, like I mean that's that's a very tame look. I had the handlebar for a little bit. Oh, wow. um, I had a chin strap for a couple days. Douchiest look ever. <laughs> uh, had had the goatee look a couple times. Um, but yeah, no. For for the most part, my uh, my philosophy around having a beard is simply I only have one because it's the lowest upkeep facial hairstyle. Um, you know, I I trim my neck maybe like once a week. And I trim the beard maybe like once every three or four months. And that's it. Like, I, I don't want to shave every day. I don't want to trim with any, like, regular frequency. Um, and so, like, maintaining some other sort of facial hair arrangement would just completely defeat the purpose of having facial hair for me. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I, I've done things for just, like, a, a day or two at a time. Like, just 
just as a joke, but n- never, never anything like consistent. Yeah, I, my my beard and mustache get longer exclusively when I've just let myself go. Yeah, and I'm not taking care of myself. Uh, last week you you should you should grow it out. I I think you could rock like a a pretty long beard. I, I'll I'll think about it. But but uh, it was like a couple weeks ago. It had gotten kind of long, and I was just wasn't taking care of it. And I was drinking uh, from a faulty can, mm-hmm. like a can of, uh, I've been drinking a lot of non-alcoholic beer lately. It was very good. But the can was made, like it, something went wrong with the production of this can. And my mustache hair two different times got caught in the can. Oh, yeah. It was obscenely painful. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I, it's definitely time to trim. Uh, so yeah, that's just a danger to, to look out for, for all the, all the folks out there. That is completely fair. All right, uh, so I, I see that we're touching on current events in this episode. Slightly. Uh, Stephen Mack, one of the Stronger by Science coaches. Stephen's awesome. If you're looking for coaching, uh, hit up our coaching program. If you get paired with Stephen, you're in incredibly good hands. Uh, but yeah, so Stephen asks, uh, political takes. What are your thoughts on student loan forgiveness? Yeah, I've seen a lot of folks in the fitness space uh, commenting on this. Uh, with a variety of different opinions and perspectives, which is usually we don't put a lot of like directly political stuff in, in into the show. But in this case, I, I feel like in so many different industries and sectors, people are kind of weighing in. But for those who aren't aware, uh, in the United States, uh, education is prohibitively expensive. Uh, and so a lot of folks need to take out pretty considerable loans in order to afford higher education. Um, and recently the, uh, the government passed a thing that, that forgave, uh, for a lot of people, a portion of their loans and restructured, uh, the way that, that loans were getting paid back and things like that. So my personal perspective, I got really lucky, uh, to be clear, didn't, I, I don't claim to have earned it, uh, through force of will and exceptional talent. I got super lucky. Um, and was awarded a scholarship that made it such that I could afford college without having to burden myself with enormous amounts of debt. Uh, my girlfriend uh, is in a, sa- a similar situation, but she actually is smart and talented. So my, mine was mostly luck. I might get into that story later. Uh, but, but she also was in a position due to um, academic scholarships, did not have to burden herself with these enormous loans. So I have no skin in the game. I have nothing to gain from this policy getting passed. Uh, but I'm really stoked about it and, and fully supportive. Um, you know, it's I, I think the way that people have to take on these extremely large loans so early in life, and then they just have to bring them through their young adulthood like this enormous trailer that they're pulling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the way that the system is currently set up is is really predatory. And so I'm really stoked to see that people are getting some relief from that. I, I would love to see an even more extensive uh, approach to this loan forgiveness that went a little further. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that it is a, a nice first step. And there are some some aspects to this. I, I haven't looked into it in extreme detail, but from what I've heard about it, I, I think it's a step in the right direction, which is which is nice. I I agree. Also, uh you know, I, I referred earlier in the episode to podcast lore. Part of the podcast lore is this is, of, of course, a conservative Christian family values podcast. 
And as such, I think that, I don't know, maybe we should take a peek at Deuteronomy 15, the concept of the year of Jubilee. I think this is a good first step, but just clear all debts every seven years. That's, that's, that's what God wanted. I think that's what we should do. But no, uh, serious answer. I, I'm uh, very much in agreement with you. Um, I also was able to go to undergrad for free. Um, also from, from scholarships that, uh, I, I didn't have to do much to, to acquire. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that like, like looking at the trajectory of my life at graduation, there were a lot of doors open to me that wouldn't have been open if I was in a fair, a fair bit of debt. And there were a lot of decisions I made that carried low risk that would have carried considerably more risk if I was in a lot of debt coming out of undergrad. Um, and I, I, maybe this is a wild idea. Uh, I just want other people to have access to the same opportunities that I did. Um, and so like, I, I think that, I don't know, like this, this is maybe like a somewhat spicy take, but from in, in I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Not everyone would fall into I'm would fall scared. under the this number umbrella. of caveats that you're that you're piling up here is making me very nervous. Yeah, whatever, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, but so there there is a particular type of person that would that would and does object to student loan forgiveness that would also um very much say, well, look, we we want equality of opportunity but like the crazy progressives or the crazy leftists they want equality of outcome and that's bad but equality of opportunity that's good we should all support that and like i don't i don't see how expecting people to either come from means or take on a lot of debt or not attend college like like the, those being the three paths I don't see how that comports at all with any concept of equality of opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like I, again, this, this could be a wild idea, but I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the routes that are available to people when they get out of high school and they're making a decision about what do I want to do next? Do I want to go to college? Do I want to go to tech school? Do I want to go right into the workforce? Whatever. Like, I, I think that, all of those avenues should be available to people and there shouldn't be differing amounts like like differing levels of needing to mortgage your future to pursue one of those routes um so yeah like i i think this is a great first step uh but i also think that uh i don't know maybe there there needs to be some systemic changes so that like college and trade schools are free or effectively free um and and far more accessible to people yeah um i i agree that it's really important the point that you made about um how uh different funding opportunities for college impact what you do in those critical years immediately after the mm -hmm. undergraduate degree and you know for me like what i have felt comfortable wandering into five or six years of grad school and say, oh, I don't really know how much money I'll make on the back end, but 
this stuff seems interesting. I'd like to get in the lab. It's like, well, if you're walking out of your undergrad degree with, you know, this enormous loan and you're like, well, I need to start paying this thing off immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, it it very much shapes what kind of paths are in front of you as you move forward to that next step, uh, which is which is unfortunate that people uh, are are so frequently unable to pursue things where, where they could do things that are really fulfilling and really beneficial to society, you know, because they're s- stuck saying, well, I need to make money and I need to do it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah, let's, let's I, do I it. I have this it, habit. There's a different podcast called the Stronger by Science podcast that I host. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just, I have a tendency to grab the steering wheel. If, if, we, if we stay on this topic, you know what we talk about off mic. If we yeah. stay on this topic, I would eventually get myself in a lot of trouble. So yeah. we, we should probably carry on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anthony Pletcher asks, what is the biggest what if moment in your lives? What small event completely could have changed the trajectory of your life unknowingly? You know, so so for me, um, the reason I kind of group these together in the outline is I, I alluded this to this story in the previous answer. Um, but for me, it wasn't unknowingly like it was it was a pretty clear, like major momentous thing that happened in my life. But I mentioned my, my undergraduate scholarship was uh, I considered considered to be entirely lucky with maybe just an ounce of strategy behind it. But I, I was uh, due, due to just basic stuff, GPA, uh, standardized test scores, et cetera, invited out to this competition and didn't really know what the competition was like i didn't know what the what was going to be happening you know, mm-hmm. as far as i could tell it could be a talent show for all i knew and so i'm thinking probably like a math test and maybe like an english test or something but they actually just say like all right you have to write two essays here's a, a sheet of paper there's three prompts on the front three on the back pick one of each and go for it and i look around the room and i'm like I am not the smartest person in this room and I'm not close. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even near the, the top of that, of that range. So I basically said, well, I'm not going to outsmart the room and just have uh, you know, the most intelligent essay, but I could write two absolutely deranged essays and the people reviewing them will either think this, this person is a genius a creative mastermind. We need a person like this in our school, or they're going to say, "Oh my God, who submitted this?" Uh, and I just rolled the dice. I was like, "Whatever, I'm, I'm going to go just kind of off the rails with this thing," and uh, and yeah, I went for it. And uh, it, you know, the people who graded it must have thought it was nice. And like I said, I mean, that little decision of like, should I try to play this straight or just go just go a completely different direction? Uh, ended up, you know, really dramatically shaping what kind of avenues were were available ahead ahead of me, and yeah, just completely dumb luck, really. Do Do you remember what what the prompts were and what your responses to those prompts were? Yes, yes. Uh, so <laughs> so one of them was about like uh, uh, forecasting a type of technology that you think will be really impactful in, in the future, in the next you know some amount of of time frame. Uh, on the other side, it was like, uh, I forget, I think it was if Beethoven was, was making music today, what kind of music would he make? Uh, and so my hope, my gamble was that the same person would be assessing both. Yeah. And so for one of them, I talked, 
I basically drew up this um, completely horrific uh, dystopian future that just completely ran amok due to genetic engineering. Like I just went went so off the rails with it. Yeah. That I would hope anyone reading it would be severely unsettled, you know, Uh, and (laughs) for the other one, I said, I'm going to make this as frivolous and fun as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. So I weave this narrative of um, Beethoven essentially playing the role of like a DJ Khaled and just kind of putting together these mixtapes with just whoever seems to be getting the most clicks at the moment, you know, who gets a lot of hype on Twitter when they put out a single and so I, I, I just drew together the, these two things. One of them was just the darkest, most dystopian thing. The other, this very light, uh, you know, very fun, adventurous little uh, work of fiction. And I was like, whoever reads this, if, if they see that both of these came from the same mind, they might just be impressed. Nice. And that was it. Nice. Uh, so, so for me... Uh... The biggest what if moment of my life actually happened uh, two days ago, as of the time of recording. So uh, I held the door for J. Cole on Wednesday, going into the gym. Turns out he goes to the same gym as I do. Pretty cool. Um, really? Yeah, but I, I didn't. I didn't say anything. I didn't introduce myself. Figured like he's world famous. Like he's he's probably not trying to like get recognized and like have people ask for autographs or pictures at the gym. I was like, you know what? It's fine. Just hold the door for him. Not say anything. But, you know, I think what if I did? And I could have become part of his crew, um, signed to Dreamville Records, become a world famous rapper. Um, But, you know, like all is not lost. I might have other opportunities. Uh, But no. So my my actual answer is, um, so the, the way... My wife and I met was strange. So we we were high school sweethearts. uh, And I had plans to uh, go swing dancing with a a completely platonic friend. Uh, And anyway, like, you know, it it was with the understanding that, like, it was just as friends. If anything else came up, totally fine to cancel. So she did get a, a date lined up for that weekend, so she canceled on me. And, uh, like, I didn't know Lindsay. Like, we didn't have any mutual friends. Didn't have that many shared interests. But, like, I thought she was cute. I thought she seemed cool. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I'm I'm just going to take a swing, see how it goes. So I invited her to go swing dancing. Take which, a swing, no pun intended. Yeah, which which in hindsight, like, that's... That's like a, a deranged first date for high schoolers. Um, but anyway, she said yes, and uh, it's it's been great ever since. And like it's uh, it, it's it's hard to understate just how positive of a thing that has been for me. Um, she is she, like not to be too cheesy, but like she's the best thing that's ever happened to me, and not just from like an emotional perspective but also from like a self-preservation perspective uh i think i have a lot of self-destructive tendencies and she is a great stabilizing force in my life that forces me to be a a more normal human which is very good and healthy for me uh so yeah if if uh, i didn't get stood up for for swing dancing 
who knows what would have happened. Um, but yeah, so that 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 might be a little bit too too schmaltzy, but whatever. That's that's my actual answer. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, uh, Patrick Douglas says, uh, "What is the worst job you've ever had, and what made it the worst?" We we can we can reverse order here. I, I see you have a lot to say. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, <laughs> so mine is being a YMCA summer camp counselor, uh, and that that's for several reasons. One is like it was a summer job, like between years of school, needed to make money to like save up for the next semester and it seemed like it was going to be a pretty decent gig like the pay wasn't terrible the hours were supposed to be relatively long and sufficient to make what i needed to anyway we show up on day one enrollment in the summer camp was way lower than they thought it would be so our hours got cut by like 60 percent on on day one hours and therefore wages hours and therefore wages and uh it was also on like a weird schedule so it, it wasn't like you always worked morning or always worked afternoon which really curtailed your ability to find another job because it's you know like you, you couldn't say like here are the hours i'm available like it, it was very touch and go um and so like that that was rough just like purely from just the the facts of employment um and then also man like kids are exhausting um and it's it's not necessarily that i dislike kids they're just a lot they have so much energy like i i acclimated to it over the summer but i i have never been more tired than i was after the first week of that job and like i mean i i work long hours now but it's not like as is physically taxing for sure i've also worked very physically taxing jobs but like a, a week of looking after nine and ten year olds for for even just like four or five hours a day in the North Carolina sun, I will note that didn't help. Man, I was wore out. And then finally, uh, I, w- I was in trouble all the time as an employee because, like, there, like, there, your inability to be a good employee is 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 something we've covered before, right? So here, here's the thing, and here, here's why I'm a bad employee. So I'm interested in getting my job done well. And I feel like I need autonomy to do that. Um, and, you know, it's it's not that I'm unwilling to accept input from authority figures. It's that if I do the things they say, and it's a fucking disaster, I'm going to say, no, I'm going to troubleshoot this and find if something works better. And so, like, we, in our training, we were trained to basically, like... Uh, be I, I think the term was like authoritative figure so not like authoritarian but like i don't i don't remember all of the nomenclature but in like part of that was like we were essentially supposed to like treat the treat the children as if they were babies mm-hmm. and like if, if i was looking after the five and six year olds like maybe that would have flown but like yeah, my kids were between 9 and 11. And so that's like an age where people's brains are starting to come online. And so like, you know, the first week I was like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll try to do uh what I'm supposed to, like interact with them by the book. And like it it just wasn't going well cuz like they 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 were at the age where like they don't want to be treated like babies. I think that 
caused some amount of resentment. And like my my default way of interacting with people is just treating everyone as a peer. Um and like that's that's one reason why I'm pretty uncomfortable around small children cuz it's like look if we can't have a conversation like you can't speak in complete sentences and I can tell you don't have like the attention span to really pick up on complex thoughts and none of their stories are interesting. Yeah, they, they're kids are stupid. Yeah. Um but yeah, uh so I I struggle with that. But you know, 10, 11 years old, brains are starting to come online. You you can start like actually having a conversation. And so, like, that's what I did. And it worked a lot better. Like, if someone was acting up, I'd be like, hey, man, like, let's let's talk about this. You know, like, I, I understand you got some energy you need to let out. But, you know, just just keep in mind what's going on here. Like, there's one of me, 20 of y'all. Like, we, we got to we, we got to figure out a way to do this that's going to work for everyone. Um, and, like, they were very receptive to that in. Things were going pretty well, but every time one of my supervisors would observe what I was doing, uh, like they they would call me in and be like, "That's that's wrong. You're doing it wrong." So, I, but also, again, on the topic of being a bad employee, uh, the hours were shit. The pay wasn't that good, and it wasn't like the most in demand job. So, like, I basically called their bluff. Um, I was like, like are you going to fire me? And they're, they're like, no, like we, we need you to, to keep doing this, but like, just, just try to do it this other way. But like the only thing I processed is, okay, I'm not going to get fired. Yeah. Therefore I'm just going to keep doing this. So, uh, yeah, the overall, I got along great with my kids and like that part of the job was good, but I, I was in constant conflict with my supervisors, but Again, like they they were in a position where they couldn't fire me, so yeah, it was okay. Yeah, for me, um, you know, I this I want to be careful about how I frame this because I I don't want to do a like complainy kind of segment. Um, but I would say that like objectively speaking, if you think about what are the characteristics that make a good job and what are the characteristics that make an unfavorable or or uh you know a, a bad job. I, I would have to say that being a grad student was the worst job I ever had, just objectively going by the the the, the characteristics. Mm-hmm. And one one of the ways that I, I work through that, and like I would go back and do it again because it's a stepping stone. It, it's a thing you do to get to the job you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do find it very funny that a lot of advisors uh, and and a lot of faculty members say, "Well, you should treat being a grad student like a job." And I'm like, I think that's bad advice because this. If if you were to write out this job description, right, the job <laughs> description is you, by the time you get to the end of your PhD, you're still a grad student, right? Mm-hmm. So at some time in your trajectory, your job description is, I need you to have a master's degree and then two to four years of extra, t- extra training beyond that, right? And you're, if you're doing human research, in many cases, you are perpetually on call, mornings, nights, weekends, whatever. Someone didn't come in for their visit Friday. Guess what? Your Saturday plans are canceled because you need to get them in because it had to be 48 to 72 hours in the protocol, right? So like you are perpetually on call. A typical work week between your coursework, your teaching, your grading, your research, your writing, very often in excess of 70 hours. And the pay level, no matter where you're living in the United States, is almost always below $30,000 a year. 
If you put that stuff on a, if you just put that out on a flyer and said, Hey, go ahead and call this number for this job. No one is, no one is making that call. Yeah. So like it, the, the, the classic advice is, Hey, treat it like a job. But I, I think that that advice is like, well, maybe it'd be cool if we did that globally. So maybe if not just the grad student treated it like a job, but also the university yeah. said, Oh, we're going to treat this like a job, which means like, we're going to make these expectations more compatible with what an actual job is like, you know? So like there are some places in the world that I hear that, you know, a- as you get further along in that process, you know, it, the gig starts getting a little bit better as you go. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that was always, um, one of the things like it, it, it's easy to say from the outside, but like if, uh, someone made me, uh, you know, a high powered administrator in a university, one of the things that I think the the American university system could collectively really improve is just how we structure the graduate student setup and how we calibrate their salary expectations and things like that. Their their compensation, I should mm-hmm. say. But yeah, on paper, it, it's it's a pretty crappy job, and I think it gets more obvious toward the end because when you're toward the end of a PhD, they're like, "Hey, you're going to teach this 300 level class." And it's also a class that some of our faculty members teach. And so you're, you're literally doing the same job. Yeah. Uh, and there's no additional guardrails that, that are provided for you versus them. You're doing all the same grading. You're teaching the same content. And their salary is usually four or five times higher than yours yeah. for, for literally the same thing that you're doing. Uh, and at that point, most of your research, you're doing pretty independently, just like they are. And so, yeah, toward the end of the gig, you start to say, like, I really need to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't like I said, I don't want to be too complainy because like I, I I have no complaints. I was a grad student for a while, had a lot of opportunities put put on a platter right in front of me. I got very lucky in that regard. Uh, so I don't want to make it seem like I'm out over here complaining. But objectively speaking, you do get to a point toward the end where you're like, I, I need to move on to something else immediately. Nice. Uh, but yeah. An underrated job, if you're like, uh, you know, like when, when I was in high school, mm-hmm. I had some crappy high school jobs that I hated. Uh, food service was pretty tough. Dude, janitor at a gym was the best high school and college <laughs> gig you could ever get. I yeah. mean, I was just up there mopping away on, on the gym floor and just chatting with everybody. Hey, how's your bench press going? Hey, did you get that, that deadlift the other day? Like, it was the best, man. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, Michael Taylor asks, uh, how about some more conversation around under the radar music that you're listening to? I I will once again go first because your list is quite a bit longer than mine. Um, I don't, I don't really seek out much new music and most of the stuff I listen to is like the stuff I listened to in high school. It was good. Then it hasn't gotten worse over time. Uh, and discovering new music is a time investment. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't fix or don't try to fix what isn't broken. That's kind of how I approach it. Uh, but I will say, uh, she's not super under the radar, but I don't think she's super mainstream yet. I have been listening to some Remy Wolf recently. Um, I saw her open for Lord, uh, a couple months back. She was very good, brought, uh, excellent energy to her live show. And said, you know what? I'm gonna check her out on Spotify. So I did, and it's uh it's enjoyable music. So that that would be my my recommendation. 
Good stuff. Uh, I'm going to go through this really quickly here, but first, a disclaimer. Uh, by definition, I do not have under the radar music because I do not have an ear to the ground. I am not part of the uh, underground music scene. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything that has gotten to me by default is not actually under the radar. Uh, so what I wanted to do here as a true empiricist is I just went through one of the playlists I've been listening to a lot lately, one that I made myself. And just I was like, oh, what are some bands on here that you don't hear about? much uh these days uh in in uh you know out in the wild as people are discussing music so just running through some names yaysayer excellent band saw them at Lollapalooza and they were incredible kurt vile same deal saw him at Lollapalooza. he was great a band called real estate uh lcd sound system which i i don't believe they make music anymore unless i'm mistaken but back in the day they were they were pretty solid Grizzly Bear, Deer Hunter, Pavement, Local Natives. Uh, that's one that a lot of folks haven't heard of, but they're pretty solid. Mac DeMarco is going to really big in the like indie music world now. So and some someone is going to just roast me for including him on an under the radar list. Uh, if it makes you feel better, I've never heard of him. Oh, so. uh, well. He's he's under my radar. Okay. He's under at least one radar. Yeah, but, but Mac DeMarco, I like his stuff a lot. Uh, a few bands that are, are not under the radar, but, um, you know, they were on the playlist, so I'll throw them in there. The Strokes, I love The Strokes. Uh, Interpol had some really solid albums. Uh, there's a, a artist who goes by the name The Teaver, who, who's quite good. And then one that's just a complete curveball, total change of genre. But have you heard any music from Silk Sonic? I'm sure I have. I, I think Lindsay has some of them on her playlist, but yeah. I, I, I haven't sat down and like chewed on their music. Yeah, uh, well, they're great. It's a, a collaboration between Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, And uh, it, it's, in terms of genre, just a complete 180 <laughs> compared to everything else on the list. But yeah, they, they've got some really nice stuff. All right, moving on. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Sean... So, so, Sean Sutherland asks, what are your favorite five movies of all time? Uh, with a parenthetical, uh, assuming Eric has seen at least five movies, lol. Yeah, so I can't really do a top five movie list. I think it would be inappropriate due to insufficient sample size as the question gets at. I just, I can't offer an informed opinion on that. But I will say this, I was in a room uh, hanging out and my, my brother was like, Hey, do you want to watch a movie? And I said, absolutely not. He said, well, let me rephrase that. I'm going to watch a movie. You can do whatever you want. Uh, and he put on 2001, a space odyssey and the opening scene drew me in like the most powerful magnet on the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was blown away. And like with the, with the monkeys looking at the pillar, it was yeah there's just this entire sequence at the beginning it starts with that and then it gets into this very ominous conversation and you can't tell exactly what they're talking about but you know you want to know yeah right and so it was very nuanced subtle filmmaking storytelling that drew you in without like you know hitting you over the head with with any really explicit details um but yeah that movie drew me in and was a wild ride uh, so that that has to be on the list if I were to make one. But instead of movies, I'm going to give my my top five television series uh, just based on how I'm feeling lately. 
Uh, Breaking Bad was excellent. It was a classic. Peaky Blinders, I very, very much enjoyed. Seinfeld is a classic. Uh, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is, in my opinion, kind of the, the modern Seinfeld. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some pretty clear parallels there. But my favorite universe of content is called On Cinema at the Cinema. Uh, and it's Greg Turkington and Tim Heidecker. And uh, it's, it's really difficult to explain. It started out as like a YouTube uh, movie review show that they would do in character. The movie reviews were terrible, but they were developing this kind of universe behind it that branched out into so many different things. And it's, it, I don't even know where to begin in trying to disentangle how that universe came together. But I mean, it's, They've had television shows, uh, a YouTube series, podcasts. Like it's a whole, it's a whole thing at this point, and it's just a very like the the term that a lot of people would use is anti comedy for kind of the way they approach it. Although I know Tim Heidecker, uh, at least from interviews I've seen, takes issue with that because he's like, it's either funny or not, and if it's funny, it's comedy, yeah. right? But uh, it's a very unique kind of niche approach to comedy that. If a hundred people listening to this check it out, uh, ninety-seven will be like Eric. I don't get it. Why? <laughs> why are you doing this? And the other three will watch it uh, for the rest of their life and buy a T-shirt. Nice. Yeah. All right. So, so for me, uh, I I did actually answer the question that was asked. Uh, that my, sounds like a dig at me. Well, it said five movies, and you only gave one. I do have a question for you. Yeah. If you like two thousand and one, have you? checked out any of kubrick's other stuff no because an irrational thing about me that i will always defend is i refuse to spend two hours uh initiating the pro- the process of watching a movie i i refuse to sign up for that commitment but if you sp- play four 30-minute television shows i'll watch all four of them no problem that is completely fair the one thing i will say is that if you like 2001 but don't like many other movies, there might be some other stuff in the Kubrick canon you like because they all have a very particular feel that's pretty unique to Kubrick stuff. Yeah. In that you like, no matter how good the actors are and what they're trying to emote on screen, there's a deep sense you get that everyone involved in the project is miserable. Yeah. Because they are. Yeah. Because apparently it was hell to work for Kubrick. <laughs> he, he, would, he would make people like just do the same scene like 200 times in a row. Uh, um, and uh, yeah. So y- y- I, I, think w- I think with Kubrick, like y- you either love him or you hate him. Yeah. But if, if you like one of his movies, you, you'll probably like more. So he, he's trying to get misery out of the actor. And he says, well, we don't need to act. I'll just make you miserable. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll just create it. Yeah, yeah. Like, no matter what, if you were in a Kubrick film, you were a method actor. Yeah. And, yeah. You, and you were embodying the role of a miserable actor. Yeah. But we'll call it a practical effect. Correct. I will just make you extremely miserable. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, but yeah, so, so my list is... Uh, uh, and, and this isn't necessarily in order, but these are my top five. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Director's Edition. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Director's Edition. Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, uh, Director's Edition once again. Uh, and then for the final two, and, and to be clear, like I, I think that the Lord of the Rings trilogy 
is maybe one of the greatest masterpieces ever ever put to film. Um, so my next one I've mentioned on the podcast before, and this could just be recency bias, but I really, really liked uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And it it might be in my top five. It was it was uh I, I found it spectacular. Uh and then for the fifth spot, it's hard to narrow it down to just one, but I, I'm gonna say Spirited Away, or really just about anything by Hayao Miyazaki. Um I, I think of his movies, I think Spirited Away is my favorite, but th- there's just a time where you have an itch. You, you have a, a Miyazaki itch that only Miyazaki can scratch. Um, his, his movies just have such a, such like a great ambiance and vibe that's, uh, th- that's fairly unique to him and is just, just incredibly pleasant. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, do we want to, do we want to move on to some Reddit questions? I feel like we've been going kind of long. Um, it's up to you. You're the host. I'm just here for fun. All right. Um, <laughs> okay we we can save these for just like another fireside chat at some point i i think we have like another whole episode's worth of questions picked out yeah but i do want to go for two reddit questions i would say so as to not neglect that community um yeah let, let's go for some random ones so uh Ulrich asks you're being sent back to florence italy in the year 1000 ce leaving in 12 hours you will be provided travel clothing, basic camping gear, and an empty medium backpack. You don't know if you'll ever return to this time. Uh, you'll get military vaccines, but once you arrive, you're on your own. You can bring one item with you as long as it fits in the backpack. You can bring multiple of the item as long as everything fits in the backpack. Your mission is to accelerate human civilization. What do you bring? Uh, I have to go after you because okay. my... my uh... My answer is basically just building upon yours, yeah, because I think you got the correct answer, yeah, so i I think the the obvious uh answer is just a physics textbook and and be discerning about it, like try to find ones that include like relatively detailed descriptions of how the early experiments were done and how the early discoveries were made, because like you know shit like electromagnetism like you could you could give someone from a thousand ce like the equations they'll be like what the fuck is this yeah uh and like i don't i don't know how they initially discovered that but like a a good physics textbook that takes you through both like the implications of how to work with these forces but also just like how they could go about independently like verifying them uh i I think that that's probably the play Uh, and then you couldn't take these in a backpack but just in terms of things I would try to teach them, I would try to teach them about crop rotation because Europeans specifically were really late to the game on crop rotation. Like when, when people talk about the dark ages, they're like, ah, like nothing really happened. Things were great in the Roman empire. And then, ah, like all, all technological progress stopped. Like that's, that's not true. Uh, and if anything, like one, one of the most important technological breakthroughs made uh, was crop rotation during the Middle Ages. And, and that's like one of the things that allowed populations to start exploding. Just because like before that, people would just plant fields every year, eventually just run them out of nutrients and then just kind of starve. <laughs> um, so uh, teach them about crop rotation and teach them about germ theory of disease. That seems like a pretty big one. 
Uh, and I do know how, how Pasture demonstrated that. So I could, I could walk them through it as, as long as they had like reasonable quality glassware. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you are largely correct in terms of what you're trying to achieve there. But one thing I'll point out, uh, it says you can bring one item with you. It leaves some room for interpretation there. I believe you could create the item mm-hmm. in my opinion. And so what I would do is take kind of like a scrapbook approach to the materials that I'm putting in my backpack. So uh, I think you you hit the nail on the head because the goal here is to accelerate human civilization, right? So physics textbook, very big, crop rotation, germ theory. What I would try to do is put together a little binder. So like, hey, here's like kind of a crash course in what you can expect over the next, uh, you know, thousand years or so. So I try to throw in some stuff about how vaccines work, maybe uh, drop, drop a little hint about antibiotics in there. Electric light seems important, but probably one of the, the single thing that I think would, you know, kind of achieve that goal of accelerating human civilization, I'd say, hey, printing press is coming along in several hundred years, but like, you might want to get a head start on that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, would, I would try to prioritize the printing press and say, you, you want to you do this. This will be nice. That's smart. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's let's end on uh, let's end on the trolley problem. Oh God! So uh, what you expect? Uh, said uh, I'm going to be boring and just invoke the trolley problem. It's been overdone to death, but usually has a ge- has generated at least some authentic ideas each time I've heard it discussed through through various media. And then Dark Autumn adds that uh, w- one of one of like the classic versions of the trolley problem is like okay like maybe you're willing to pull the lever but what if instead of pulling the lever you had to push someone physically push someone onto the tracks to stop the trolley still killing one saving five would you do it many people say they wouldn't uh but apparently one of the groups that pretty consistently or two of the groups that pretty consistently say they would i haven't checked the sources on this i'm going to assume that that this user dark autumn isn't lying to us uh but apparently two of the groups that would push the person onto the tracks are psychopaths and buddhist monks uh so they were particularly interested in uh how eric would respond to that and just the trolley problem in general so uh that that's kind of a, a peek ahead but let's just start with the basics so i'm sure most most listeners here are aware of the trolley problem but if not here, the the most basic setup is that a trolley's coming down the tracks. And there's five people tied to the tracks. There's no way you can get there to untie them and save them. Uh, either the trolley is going to run them over, or you can pull a lever, divert the trolley to another set of tracks. There's one person tied up to that set of tracks. You also can't do anything to save them. Uh, you know, they're they're not going to get away. So basically, do you allow the trolley to keep just going straight? not take action and allow five people to die or do you pull the lever divert it to the other tracks and allow one person to die but you know the uh like how how much do you value uh like bad things happening due to your inaction versus bad things happening due to like an active action that you take so yeah eric do you do you pull the lever so I do, uh, and I have many times, mm-hmm. uh, and I think t- to me it comes back to my uh, my my old teaching uh, that I was doing 
So back in uh, when I was teaching a sports medicine class uh, at, at the university level, we would have to talk a little bit about um, legal ramifications of uh, failing to, uh, you know, uh, complete your task in the sports medicine field with a satisfa- satisfactory level of competence, right? So we would mm-hmm. talk about uh, lawsuits related to negligence. And, you know, you can look at acts of omission, which is, you know, failing to do what you have a duty to do. I'm paraphrasing here off memory. Uh, and then acts of commission, where you do a bad thing. And it's like, dude, you should not have done that. It, but both of those things are routes to negligence and harm, right? And so I think this really gets at the idea of, do, are you so averse to an act of commission? you know, pulling the lever and doing a thing that causes a death, you know, you're you're kind of, I guess, balancing like the guilt uh, that comes with an act of of commission of doing that thing versus, uh, you know, the the fact that by doing that, you know, you can no longer claim to just be hands off and say, well, it was an act of omission. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about one life being lost or five. Right. So I I think uh, I would pull the lever because I think the distinction between one life and five lives is much more impactful than the distinction between an act of omission and an act of commission. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, I, I pull the lever and I, I mean, who, who knows how I would respond if, if I was actually in that situation. But in terms of just here in this room, just talking about it theoretically, uh, yeah, I, I pull the lever and, and I don't have to think too hard about it. So my excuse is that I'm a Buddhist. What's uh, what's your excuse? <laughs> that you're a psychopath. Uh, I don't. I don't think I have like a super consistent. Well, so that that's the that's the next iteration of this. Problem. Oh, okay. But in in terms of just in general, how how I look at this, I don't think I have a super consistent set of ethical principles. But I, I do think if I have kind of like a default mode of how I operate. Um, I, I think I have like some core principles that kind of like transcend general ethical decision making to me. So like w- one of those is loyalty. Um, like if 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 you're one of my people, like I, I've got your back uh, almost no matter what. Um, so like they're they're kind of like those big overriding principles, kind of like that. But then when it comes down to like kind of more day-to-day ethical decision-making, I'm pretty utilitarian. Like, that's that's kind of the way I lean. So for, I mean, mo- most of the time I pull the lever for, yeah. for most iterations of the trolley problem. All right, so now let's get into the one that, uh, that Dark Autumn asked about in particular. So now, instead of, uh, instead of just the train barreling down the tracks and you can pull a lever to divert it, you can either just let it keep rolling. Uh, there's there's no lever to pull. There's no second set of tracks. But you're standing on a bridge, and there's another person standing on on the bridge, and you can push them in front of the trolley, and and that will stop it. Uh, and, and you know this is a, a philosophical question. So like, you can't say, oh well, it wouldn't actually stop the trolley. Like you yeah. you know with perfect knowledge that pushing this person in front of the trolley will stop the trolley. But now you're actually shoving a person instead of pulling a lever do do you do you do that one 
You know, I, I think, um, again, it's easy to do like a little thought experiment like this and answer a certain way. Um, you know, whether or not you would actually do it in the moment when the adrenaline's rushing is, is very different. Uh, I think it would be harder in that situation. But uh, when you're when you're discussing it as a hypothetical, I, I would still say, yeah, I mean, that it, it, it again is, you know, uh, an act of commission rather than omission, but one that ultimately saves a net of four lives. Uh, so I, I don't think that the concept of, uh, you know, a push being uh, a much a much more terrible act than a lever pull. I, I don't think that that really changes the calculus that much to me. You know, like I, I know that we we have the kind of built in uh, mental concept that like yeah, pushing someone is a not nice thing and is is a more aggressive action than pulling a lever. Uh, but but I, I really don't think that logically it changes the calculus that much. Okay, uh, so I. I agree. So I guess that makes you the Buddhist and me the psychopath. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm that scans whatever. Uh, okay, so you know th- those those are the, the the two in particular we were asked about. There there are many other iterations. Do do you have an iteration of the trolley problem that you would like to throw at me? No, I I never heard of the trolley problem until uh, I saw it in the outline. Really? Yeah, I've never heard of it. Oh, shit. Okay, let's have some fun then. Okay. (laughs) All right, so now, uh, you know, the original version of the trolley problem, five, one, pull the lever, kill one, save five. But the person on the tracks is, um, say, like, either like your girlfriend or a parent, best friend, close family member, something like that. I hate where this is do, going. Do you pull the lever then? Oh, man. Um, you know what? I, I I did look at the link that was talking about how the, the Buddhist monks answered to this, and I'll, I'll probably get kicked out of, of my sangha for this. But, ah, uh, man, like you said, loyalty really starts to mess around with your, like, set of, of ethical kind of uh, things, you know? Like, who mm-hmm. it'd be really... It'd be really hard, right? So, like, if someone you care about is on that other area of the tracks and you're pulling the lever to divert the train or the trolley toward them, ugh, I, I don't think I could do it if I'm being honest with myself. And, and I know that the the monk said that that's a, a selfish approach and and one that's not uh, one that's not uh, supported by them. Yeah, that that's fair. So I also don't pull the lever. Um, and as as someone with vaguely utilitarian leanings, uh, I I actually think you can make a, a utilitarian argument for that. So, you know the the idea of like maximizing like net happiness, minimizing net suffering. I think that sometimes in like a utilitarian calculus, and and I'll readily admit that this sort of thinking kind of kind of opens the door for people justifying just about anything they want to. Yeah. But I, I do think you need to consider kind of like second and third order effects. And I kind of think that like one of the core tenets of having like a functioning society is you need some amount of trust. And a lot of trust is is built on uh, like fam- familiarity, basically. Like you, you, you have to have like a general understanding that like 
you you look out for your family, you look out for your friends, and like there there are relationships that matter to you. And so I guess I guess this is almost like viewing a utilitarian decision through like a deontological lens. But I, I sort of think that like if people were to generalize that and it's like, okay, well what if what if people did just start pulling the lever in that situation and like as like a default setting where everyone's like, Oh, of course we yeah, yeah we all pull the lever. Right. Yeah. And like you you could you would therefore have much less trust that the people who you care about and who you think care about you would have your back in a in a sticky situation. Yeah. I, I think the knock on effects of that would be disastrous. So Yeah, that, that's a good point. In that... in that situation I, I would not pull the lever. Anything to confirm my biases and make me feel less selfish for my previous answer, I, I'm fully in support of. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I yeah, I'd never heard of these. Uh, I, I've heard of like iterations of them in hindsight, but I'd never like heard of them categorized as like the trolley problem or or th- this like kind of. I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah, I just thought it was a uh, a random collection of thought experiments that I've encountered. Well, l- let's keep rolling. Let- let's oh, do. Oh God, I hate this. Let's do like two or three more because th- those are those are the three classic trolley problems. Okay. Um. So let's see. So th- this is this is also a classic iteration, uh, and is and is one that is probably more likely than the ones we've done so far to at least make some people upset. All right, so now it's not five and one. It's one and one. Uh, the train is barreling down the tracks, uh, and it's, it's going to hit a person who, you know, you don't know anything about them, but they appear to be, say, below 30 years old. Or you can pull the lever, and it'll divert it to a track where you don't know anything about the other person, but they appear to be maybe like 80 years old. Oh, God. Do you pull the lever? Uh, uh, I don't know. They, I can't think of a good way to answer that. I I hate these. I don't like them at all. What what do you what do you do? I mean, so I I also don't feel good about this, but I don't think, and 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 someone could persuade me otherwise about this, but I don't think that I view acts of commission and acts of omission differently like i i do think that they carry the same moral heft yeah um and so i i don't i don't think you get out of it by not pulling the lever right and i do think that i i do think that just in general um the the potential for continued life has to be valued to some extent yeah um and and so i would say like just on a in terms of like who deserves like moral consideration um i don't think that like age impacts someone's uh like inherent worth but i i do think that if you're in a situation where where like one has to die i feel like you got to pull the lever there and and I also think that's basically how the medical system works, like a, a triage system. Yeah. Like you, you know, with with finite resources, if you've got to let someone die, you start with people who have the lowest chances of survival. Right. And then if it's people who seem to have similar chances of survival, you tend to just favor the younger folks because they have more life left to live. Yeah. Um. So I I I feel like I would have to go that route, but that that's 
that's the first iteration of kind of like the classic trolley problems that yeah. does make me incredibly uneasy. It does make me uneasy. I, I guess you could kind of frame it as like, okay, let's say that we have a total of 100 person years to allocate between the two. Yeah. Does it seem uh, more fair that we say, okay, well, you get to live 20 and you get to live 80 or to say, okay, you both get 50 years, you know, you both get a crack at it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I guess with it, it's the same kind of deal where it's like, well, you know, you know, you've you've already the, the older person has already had ample opportunity to experience all the joys of life, uh, and has a a more limited, one would assume, you know, yeah. uh, remaining years of life. So, ugh, I hate these. Are you sure we have to do two or three more? We're gonna we're gonna do one more. Okay, one more is fine. We're gonna do one. So I I. I, like, here, here's the I thing. know some very devious iterations of the trolley problem. I'm, I'm taking you through the, the five, I would say, most classical versions. Okay, because one thing that, you know, as I've gotten more and more into Buddhism, I, I've thought more about how I tend the garden that is my mind mm-hmm. and whether or not I wish to burden it with hypotheticals <laughs> that are uh, anxiety-inducing or treacherous or depressing, like, I, I really do cultivate very carefully the ideas that are rattling around in my brain. So the idea of willingly subjecting myself to these awful choices. Apparently a bunch of Buddhist monks did. Yeah. For, for well, the article that Dark Autumn linked. I'm not quite a monk yet. Okay. Uh, so yeah, m- maybe they're, they're just more, more robust and resilient. They've got better training for, for navigating these waters. All right, so here here's the last one. Okay. Actually, we'll we'll do we'll do two more. Uh, okay. And then we'll be done. Okay. All right. All right. So so this one, still five one. It's the classic trolley problem, but the one person, not someone you love, uh, but it's someone who, uh, you know, is considered like a great person who who did important things. So you know, imagine it's say albert einstein um and, and you know with like perfect philosophical knowledge that he will like c- discover and publish general relativity and special relative relativity but like he hasn't yet you're, you're a time traveler in this scenario yeah you know what he would go on to do if he survived uh but it, it's it's five versus one do you let the trolley hit the five or do you pull the lever and kill einstein uh, in, you know, if if it's like the type of thing that like it is a major paradigm shifter that alters the trajectory of of human existence, mm-hmm. I I would say you'd have to say, yeah, we don't get many chances at that. That that would be my my answer. That's interesting. I I think I think this is the first one that we pretty strongly disagree on. Well, because I'm trying to think of, you know, maximizing the positive benefit of whatever that individual. So, like, for example, if it's if it's, you know, uh, a person who discovers uh, some kind of medical intervention that saves 400,000 lives. You yeah. know what I mean? Th- that's where my mind goes. Not just like a, a uh, some kind of trivial. Yeah, yeah I, I made a little novel discovery, but. I'm I'm thinking more if if if, if I know that them yeah let, let let's say it's uh let's say it's what's his name Edward Jenner uh smallpox vaccine guy I think yeah so him. like if, if I know that I can save this one life because th- what they're gonna do is gonna result in tens or hundreds of thousands of lives saved because of what they're on the cusp of achieving 
then then yeah, I, I think I would weigh that into the calculus pretty heavily. But it, it sounds like you feel differently. Yeah, no, I, I I pull that lever just as quickly as I pull the lever in in the first canonical scenario. Yeah. Um. Because I I fundamentally don't believe in the great man theory of history. Um. I, I think that. I think that there are a ton of very smart and capable people and that for most discoveries and breakthroughs that are made, uh, like the, the person that gets there first is really just like the person who got lucky and that yeah. if, if they didn't do it, someone else probably would have made like an identical discovery and like still done the same stuff within like a decade of when it initially happened. Um, cause like the, the way like ideas form very rarely do you have someone who's just like so, so transcendently brilliant that they're jumping like multiple leaps ahead. It's basically like there are ideas floating around like in, in the general consciousness of society or a particular field and like the breakthrough is just like, you're the one that figures out like the two ideas that fit together. Or, like, the way to just barely extend an extant idea to, to make it something, like, really cool and impactful. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I think Einstein, for example, was, was a brilliant physicist. But I think that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of brilliant physicists at the time. And if, if he didn't pull off uh, general relativity, like, someone else would have within, like, three years or something. So. Yeah, I, I I think that uh, yeah, I, I I pull the lever there. Yeah, I, I just I think it's difficult to to be a time traveler who's next to somebody's deathbed and saying I have great news, someone's going to cure this in thirty years. Yeah, well, but but the thing is, like, I I really I really don't think it's like thirty years. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it, it, the question is. Uh, in this hypothetical, how many people are dying and at what rate, you know, because even a 10 year delay leaves a lot of people hanging for 10 years. Yeah, that that's fair. But I, I also think that this kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with like for, for a family member, or close friend. Like, I think that if you if you start making that calculus, you start kind of signing up for a a fundamentally elitist society where you are are willing to assent that people who have been particularly successful have inherently more valuable lives than yeah. other people. And I'm not comfortable with that at all. Well, no. So, cause what I'm saying is uh, the value of the 10,000 saved, yeah. not the one saved because this is a very special person, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Are you sure that's not the last one? Because I genuinely hate this. <laughs> this you, you are right now the Stanley Kubrick of podcasters. Th this this is the last one. Okay. I, I promise you. Okay. Okay. So um all right. So your trolley's barreling down the track at five at five people. You you pull the lever, it's gonna divert it to a track with one person, and that lever pull will divert the track or divert the trolley onto a, a track that works perfectly. And that one person will die. There are five people on the other track, but the track's poorly maintained. 
it's a little rickety. Uh, in fact, it's very rickety. And there's an 80% chance that the trolley will actually just uh, run off the tracks and everyone survives. Do you pull the lever? Um, so pulling the lever puts it onto the one where there's a 20% chance or an 80% chance. P- pulling the lever puts it onto a track 100% chance one person dies. Okay. If it keeps going, there is a 20% chance that five people die and an 80% chance that no one dies. Yeah, I would, I would not pull the lever. Okay. Yeah, I'd say let's, let's see if, if the numbers work out, you know, and hope for the best. Yeah. So, I feel like you gotta give you at least open up the the chance of of a, a really successful outcome. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm with you. I, I so th- this this one I think is the least ethically fraught. I th- this more just gets to like how you think about probability. Yeah, because you know on net if you ran this experiment ten thousand times, the same number of people die no matter which way you choose. Like it it works out. Um. So, you know, it's, it's basically, are, are you willing to risk it to get the biscuit? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, once, once it goes from being a 100% proposition to a, a probability game where maybe five people die, but on average, if it's done enough times, it balances out, I, I go for the option where there is at least a probability that no one dies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of at least having the the possibility open, yeah. you know. Um, All right, we're we're done with trolley problems. You thank can, God, you can breathe easy now. I hate those because, like, it's yeah, it just is completely antithetical to everything about the way I like my brain to work. Yeah, that's like, yeah, that's completely fair. Um, I do have one thing I wanted to address before we wrap up. Was that going to be the last question? I, I think so. We've what we've been running it? pretty long. It's like five forty-five. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I so I told someone on Instagram that I'd answer their question, and so I have to answer it because I I put a time on it. Okay. Uh, an Instagram user getting back to stuff that makes me feel good instead of bad. Uh, <laughs> an Instagram user asked if I could reshare my experience about uh, getting into Buddhism, like what what the motivation was, how it was going. I don't want to like uh, harp on it too much. Uh, as you know, I quickly scampered away from the road to enlightenment segment. But since it's uh, a fireside chat and it's literally the only thing I do outside of fitness stuff, it, it comes up from time to time. Uh, and I, I haven't really uh, addressed it in a lot of detail from start to finish. Uh, I'm not going to have like a long answer, but just wanted to, to answer this question for people who are tagging along and like, what the hell's going on here? So I got interested in uh, Buddhism really at the beginning of COVID. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you've known me for several years and I had never even hinted at an interest prior to that. Um, but what I noticed with COVID, like immediately there were all the lockdowns, which I supported. I understood the, the necessity and, and thought they were the right thing to do at the time. Uh, but you know, being on board with it doesn't, is not synonymous with enjoying it, you know? And I noticed that even for someone like me who didn't go out and do a lot, there was, I noticed that when like the gym is closed and all the restaurants are closed, the things I would typically do to busy my mind and find some joy when those were closed, uh, my ability to independently generate joy and contentment was really dramatically impaired. And so it kind of made me realize that 
my ability to obtain joy was really contingent upon a lot of external conditions. And I was like, that doesn't seem like, like a good path. Like I, I'd, I'd like to be able to access that joy and general uh, contentedness uh, by my own making rather than relying on a bunch of factors outside my control. So that's what kind of got me, that's what kind of spurred me and got me into it. But I was cleaning out my house the other day. Um, someone asked if we, if we journal. And I don't journal anymore, but there was a time where I was so miserable that I started journaling a lot, which I don't understand why. It was like, I, I need contemporaneous notes of how freaking miserable I am right now. I don't know why that seemed intuitive. I, I will say that that seems pretty generalizable. Like, yeah, th that and like, it's like, I need to prove to someone in 10 years how miserable I am. Well, I, I think that there's a, you know, and this doesn't always track, but there there's a list of things that like people will recommend for like, you know, like self-care, how to feel better, whatnot. And like journaling's one of them. Yeah. Um, like taking mental health days is another one. Uh, and like all of these things that are like supposed to help you feel good. But then I kind of noticed that if someone's doing multiple of those things, it's like, you're, I don't think you're feeling that good right now. Yeah. So, so what was really funny was I was cleaning out my house um, and I found this old journal. Which I mean, I'll note that that checks out. Like people, people have a problem. They're taking steps to remedy it. Uh, I, I certainly don't begrudge that, but yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting though, because it it allows you an opportunity. It's almost like doing mindfulness without calling it mindfulness because it, mm -hmm. it it kind of instructs you to uh, decenter yourself a little bit and explore things. And in this case, just kind of jot them down, yeah. right? Instead of, you know, meditating on them or something. Uh, but it was really funny because I was looking through this journal and like, I was like, this is going to be so cringy, but I have to open it and mm -hmm. just go back to it. And what's so incredible is like this was years before I even got into this kind of stuff, but it was so obvious that it was exactly what I needed. Uh, like I was going through and it's like, oh, today I'm journaling about how I'm not managing my my strong negative emotions very well, or I'm not managing my anxiety about the future very well, or my regret about the past very well, or I'm always striving and task oriented and I can't really enjoy the present moment. I'm always chasing the next goal uh, with so much ambition that I'm ignoring the present moment, uh, really failing to just experience the present moment and access joy. I'm looking through the pages and it's so, it was so painful in retrospect because I was like, dude, you were so close. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you knew, you named every problem that you had and not a single viable solution. So in that case, the journaling at the time wasn't a particularly constructive practice because I was just documenting misery and never exploring any remedy for that, aside yeah. from just like, ah, here's a list of miseries that I've compiled. Um, but yeah, so it's really clear to me that even going back before COVID, it, it was something that probably would have benefited me very much. Because um, when you get into it, you notice that it does address a lot of those topics very explicitly and very head on, mm -hmm. you know, um, managing emotions well, managing stress and anxiety, things like that. So, and like w one of the, uh, really key ideas in Buddhism is that of aimlessness, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, you don't always have to be super ambitiously striving for the next goal. It's okay to just kind of be there and experience life. And I grew up in the Midwest, man. 
ambition is the only virtue Mm -hmm. like growing up in the midwest i'm sure that's true many places but like the american midwest is like there are the hyper ambitious folks to whom aimlessness sounds like a grave sin and then there's the people who lacked ambition which like in that cultural environment is like the worst thing you could be and, someone and, without and, ambition and they become the cautionary tale yeah for everyone else yeah yeah and so like yeah it, it was just a getting into these ideas was a complete um i had to completely revisit and in some cases restructure the way that I, the, the way that i viewed certain perspectives and mindsets but anyway yeah it was really funny to take that that trip down memory lane and covid was what nudged me over the edge to actually start pursuing these ideas um but it was it was always there, even years before, where I'm like, ah, that could have been helpful. But someone asked uh, about how I got into it and like the the content I started with. I listened to Buddhism Guide, which is a, a podcast by Karma Yeshi Rabge, which was really really nice. I really liked that. Then I started reading his books, and then I ran out of his. I read all of his books, and I said, well, what are more books? And then I got into Thich Nhat Hanh's books and his particular tradition of Buddhism really really resonated with me like i i love yeshi's stuff it was really really helpful to me and i still think it's great but tick not han stuff resonated with me at it, just a, a completely different way uh so i ended up joining a sangha that's a couple a couple blocks over that practices in the tradition of tick not han which is really cool uh and i still listen to a lot of stuff i listen to a podcast called audio dharma uh, which is a collection of lectures that are that are really, really good. And uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in just kind of tiptoeing into some of these topics and exploring what they're all about, um, those are the resources that I would highly recommend. And, you know, if I were to go back and I, I really, you know, all of these different sources really have helped me solidify things in different ways. But if someone was to say, I'm just starting out, I need something that's very approachable and accessible, um, something that doesn't insist that I immediately jump on board, with anything that is too different from the ideas I were brought up with, I would say start with some of Thich Nhat Hanh's books, and they're they're really really nice, and uh, they're they're very non-judgmental. They meet you where you are, and you can kind of pick and choose which elements are are most helpful to you. Sweet. All right, that's all I got. All right, so that that does it for this episode of uh, the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, if you want to help us out, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to like it. Drop a comment in. I hear that helps the algorithm. Uh, leave us a nice review if you're listening to this on any sort of podcast platform. If you have a negative review, uh, the, the email address to send that to is eric at strongerbyscience.com uh, to, to get a, a long, uh, very personal response to your thoughtful criticisms. and. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you all, almost assuredly in a week. If not in a week, then in two. Here's the a quick over under before we close out. How many people do you think are going to comment speculating on whether or not Eric was obscenely uncomfortable during the trolley problem or the greatest actor of our generation? I th- I think you were palpably uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those times where I was like, you know what? There is no hiding when you when you have a three camera system. Yeah, uh, people are going to watch me crawling out of my skin I, on YouTube. I actually think we need a four camera system because <laughs> your your giveaway nervous tick is when when your leg starts fidgeting yeah. at, at that particular rate because you you do fidget. Yeah, but it's like a 
it's generally like a metronomic uh fidget yeah but when you when it accelerates and becomes syncopated you know like the the difference between like normal snoring and like sleep apnea snoring like there's there's a qualitative difference um yeah we, we we need a leg cam uh, and then then people will be able to tell, you know, we could just like so when, when I was working on my Ph.D., I, I did a lot of um, cardiometabolic assessments in real time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so we would have screens going where we would have an EKG continuously and sometimes continuous uh, blood pressure monitoring. Mm-hmm. We could just do that. Uh, so if, <laughs> if we really want to help people see my discomfort and, you know, stay on brand with Stronger by Science. We can get a fourth camera feed that's just a screenshot, like a, a screen capture of just my real time uh, blood pressure and heart rate. We could uh, we, we could get like the the little finger sensors that they use for like lie detector tests that don't really tell if you're lying, but tell if you're nervous because yeah. it, it's looking at like skin reactants. Um, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. So uh, anyway, a little aside, but we will be back uh, most likely in seven days. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.